This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Hamilton's longest serving mayor, Bob Morrow, passed away yesterday at age 71. And uh, this is a man who uh, has quite a legacy here in the city. Uh, A very interesting individual. Uh, in so many different ways. Uh, joining us to talk about this are, uh, well, two of the folks that served on city council with him. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us right now. Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Yeah, I'm here. Okay, good. You got me? Yeah, I got you now. Okay, and uh, also uh, a former regional chair and now, of course, the CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation, Terry Cook, joins us. Terry, thanks for being on and jumping on side with us today. Good to be with you, Bill. You guys, uh, let me go back to the early 1990s, if I could. And uh, by then, I guess uh, Bob Morrow was into his second term uh, as, as mayor, third term, I guess, as mayor of the city of Hamilton. Uh, you guys were, uh, first of all, young bucks on city council. Uh, you, Terry, in Ward 1, Fred, you in Ward 5 over in the east end of the city. Uh, mm-hmm. This guy was a larger-than-life figure in so many ways because of his reputation. What was it like, uh, that, that first term of council, working with a guy like Bob? Terry, I'll start with you. Oh, it was amazing because... I'd grown up with Bob as my, first of all, as my counselor in Ward 1, because, of course, he he was first elected, I think, in 68. So at that time, I'd have been nine years of age and became the mayor in uh, 82 when uh, he, uh, I think, beat Jack McDonald and Bill Powell. Um, And he, he was all I'd ever known as a civic leader. And, of course, he was everywhere in the community. So you'd see him at his at the, his school, we did city hall visits. I'd known him personally because our families had known each other, and he was he was larger than life. And and of course, when you actually got to know Bob, uh, he was just such an interesting character. Um, you know, passionate for Hamilton, uh, an unrelenting work ethic. Uh, he had a, a capacity of forgiveness for. Uh, young, irresponsible member of the council like Fred and Dominic Agostino and <laughs> Christopherson and I. He'd, he'd be furious with you one one night at a council meeting, and of course he could never stay mad for any length of time. And he uh, he really endured a lot of gentle teasing. And uh, I've got so many great memories and great stories of uh, the chief magistrate, as he would call himself, especially when he was upset with us. Fred, your rebuttal. <laughs> <laughs> I was the responsible one, I have to tell you. Yeah, but that was, was to Terry's point, though, Fred, that was that was a pretty colorful council. I mean, you yourself, you, as, as Terry alluded to, uh, yourself, Dominic Agostino, some of the young bucks that were on council back in those yep. days, and uh, some other, uh, shall we say, uh, very interesting personalities on council. It made for an interesting mix. Uh, and I, I got to think that, that, that Mayor Bob at that time felt like he was hurting cats trying to control council meetings sometime. Yeah, you know, and I, I think we're all a little, a little bit in awe of Bob when we all first got there. Uh, you know, we'd all kind of grown up with him, uh, him being an elected office at a very early age. And it certainly at a time when I started to get my political awareness was uh, when Bob was, uh, you know, elected a, an alderman and then ultimately became mayor. So when you actually got to meet him in person, it was uh, a little bit, st- you know, starstruck in the beginning. But then, uh, you know, as you got to know Bob, he was a fairly down-to-earth guy. Uh, very interesting in terms of his eclectic uh, knowledge of history and uh, and his passion for music and his great talent for uh, as a pianist and as an organist and uh, and he had uh, he wasn't a funny guy but he uh, you know he had an occasional sense of humor and so you, you talk about uh, you know different councils back then you recall that we used to stand up when we spoke at the uh, at the uh, at the council chambers yeah. each each one in its turn and. You know, Bob had uh, put on some considerable weight over the years that he had a, every time he got up to speak, he would do up the uh, the front button of his jacket and would uh, stress and strain. And I, uh, you know, on occasion would lean over to Ann Bain, who sat next to me and said, if one of those buttons lets go, one of us is dead. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bob, uh, I, I told Bob about that, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and he had a good laugh. He had a really good laugh. And so he, uh, you know, he could be self-deprecating, but he could also be... Uh, very impetuous and uh, could get angry in a, in a hurry. And uh, if you got on the wrong side of Bob on an issue, uh, he certainly let you know about it. So uh, you know he had uh, he had a lot of a lot of skills and talent, but certainly an absolute complete passion for the city of Hamilton and the work that he was doing. One of the things about him that that struck me, and this goes on before I was even involved in politics, but obviously I was in the media here in Hamilton, uh, is is how. There was no pretense with Bob, was there, Terry? I mean, you know, he's the mayor. He was not your worship. He was not uh, Mr. Mayor even to many people. It was always, just call me Bob. And and that was the relationship that he tried to strike with just about everybody. 
Oh, and, and his relationship with so many Hamiltonians was personal because he'd been to their bar mitzvah or a church basement celebration or the kids' little league game. And he, he really made people feel proud when he was with them. His, you know, magnetic sense of commitment to Hamilton was infectious. And, uh, I have to tell you, of all the people I served with and, uh, you know, with great respect to Fred and many others, um, he, the guy had better retail political skills than anybody I crossed paths with. And, and, you know, all the other components of a complex individual, I think, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, minimize uh, his, his gift as a, uh, as a connector. Uh, he was remarkable in that respect. That's a unique skill, uh, and and both of you guys have, have walked that walk. Fred, you're still doing it as mayor. Uh, Terry, when you were regional chair, uh, you're pulled in about 25 different directions on any given day because they want you to do this, be here, show up for this, make a speech here. I don't know how Bob did it, but he seemed to be almost everywhere. I, and uh, there were only 24 hours in the day, but, I mean, on a typical evening, like he would be at four or five events, and you never mm-hmm. felt like he was just uh, just there for a second away. wave. You always felt like he was there for a couple of hours, and then, boom, he was off to someplace else. I, I, it's you, Like I say, Fred, you're walking that walk right now. That's a difficult task, and he was a master at it. Yeah, and, and he, he probably did more of it than anybody. I mean, uh, you know, one of the jokes was that Bob would go to an opening of an envelope, and, you know, he... Uh, <laughs> He, he went to just about everything uh, that happened in our community on a, on a regular basis, so year after year after year, never let up and uh, never never tired of it, uh, and was always keen and interested in talking to the people that were there and getting an understanding of what their feelings were about the city of Hamilton. And he had such great respect for the immigrant community. Uh, you know, he was very, very closely tied to, uh, you know, the, the waves of immigration that came to our city and Mundialization and uh, developing Twin Cities, and uh, he was, you know, I had a hand in uh, twinning up with uh, the Abruzzo region in Italy, and in uh, Rakamuto and Kaga, Kaga, Japan. I mean, the list goes on. That he was so keen on uh, making those kinds of international connections, and he had a great sense of history. Uh, you know, no one knew more about this city and the people in it and their histories than Bob Morrow, and that made him, uh, you know, especially suitable to be a. Uh, a citizenship judge. Uh, when he did those ceremonies, uh, he just filled the place with history and uh, gave people a sense that they belonged here in Hamilton in Canada. One of the, the elements that I, I always appreciated about Bob, too, was his his, his staunch defense of this city. Uh, you know, there's, that was a city that was going through some pretty rough times, Terry. I mean, economically, of course, uh, in the 80s and 90s, things did not go well in a lot of cities in North America, and Hamilton was on that list. And and Hamilton had its detractors for a number of reasons, lunch bucket town, etc. If if anything got Bob angry, it was somebody that took a shot at Hamilton, and he he would actually and I know you guys both know stories, I'm sure, where he'd actually get on the phone and and take somebody to task for what do you think you're saying about my city? Oh, and Bob, of course, was notorious with the media uh, for <laughs> tirade against any perceived slight to his Hamilton, and it was doubly passionate if it was an outside media source. So, you know, I think when the CBC on occasion would, somebody would take a cheap shot at the city. And then again, you're right. Those were in the the times of decline. So folks today who have seen this kind of burst of momentum for Hamilton over over the last decade really can't appreciate how tough it was for the civic psyche uh, to go through that, that decline. And of course, Bob never gave up on the place and was always ready to go to combat with those who were critical. Talk to me about some of the debates that happened, guys, back in those days. Uh, because there's a legacy here. Bob was not just a people person. I think that was his big strength, and he was so good at that, and we needed that in those days. But at the same time, I mean, he did plant the seeds for some rather interesting policy decisions that, that we're starting to benefit from. And I think, Fred, you talked about that yesterday. Uh, things like like being a promoter of the arts and culture as, as an economic driver that it was actually going to make the city better and attract investment. I don't know that too many people bought into that, but Bob was adamant about that uh, for many, many times. Uh, getting funding for things like uh, the opera and, or, and, of course, the Philharmonic and, and other things, especially through, through ethnicity and a number of other things. Even something as simple as I know that he took a lot of heat for the flower beds, but it was all part mm-hmm. of making this city attractive to people and making us proud about that. And we, we take that stuff for granted right now, but he was, he was really fighting those battles oftentimes without a whole lot of support in those days. 
Yeah, and, and you know, unfortunately, a lot of those things, uh, you know, cost money when, you know, money was rather scarce. You know, when, when, when our, you know, employment and our business, uh, you know, attraction was not going up, it was going down. He was trying to, uh, you know, hold the line and, and give people that sense of confidence that there's a better day ahead as long as we keep moving and we, we keep aspiring to the kinds of things that make our city better. And so he was a, he was a real hawk on ensuring that uh, we didn't forget about our cultural capacity. As you point out, he was very, very keen on uh, growing the art gallery and the Philharmonic and the opera. Um, obviously, he had, a, he had a personal musical bent himself. He was a very, very talented pianist. Uh, he uh, he in, introduced uh, uh, Franz Liszt at Way, uh, you know, at, yeah. at McNabb, another side of McNabb, to just kind of give a sense of uh, the notion that culture and music is very, very important in terms of how a community develops and grows. So he he's just kept at that building that sense of confidence. And I you know I took that uh, that that flower bed thing, which was uh, at a given point in time uh, abandoned, uh, you know, uh, shortly after amalgamation. And uh, and when I got back in, I put it back in because it, it yep. really has developed a sense of confidence in our community. And as you know, Bob would always say, if you have, if you want to feel good about yourself, uh, you know, go and buy a new suit, and you feel you feel like a million bucks. Well, doing that for the city is is exactly the same thing, and it's made a huge difference uh, for our psyche in Hamilton. And uh, I think people now appreciate that uh, that sense of confidence and can-do spirit has gotten us a long way to where we are today. i got to ask you both about something, because you were both on council for one of the most contentious issues of the 1990s, and that was the city's support for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Oh, uh, both mm-hmm. both, the, both the, le- the CFL itself was almost dying, and of course the Tiger Cats with it. Uh, it was Bob that brought David Braley into the fray uh, to take over ownership. That lasted for a few years, and then there was the public ownership. And Terry, there was a very contentious vote on council to to allot money for the Tiger Cats to basically keep these guys alive. Now, there was a game that night, uh, the night of the vote, at Iverwin. I was the PA announcer, of course, for many years down there. Uh, and I had the pleasure of, of, of telling the crowd that was at that game that city council had voted in favor. I think it was a one or two vote swing, if I recall. Uh, and uh, and I, I mentioned about the ones who voted. I didn't mention names, but uh, you and a couple of your council colleagues popped into the game after that and stood there on the just by. Yeah, you, and, were, and really, you, you were really helpful. Well you, well, you were booed, Cook, not for the first time in your life and not for the last, but it was it was a, it was quite a moment for everybody that night. Well, well, wait a minute. Quick piece of context. The vote had lost at city council. That's right. So, so Bob, never giving up, took it to regional council which by all rights should have turned the Tiger Cats down because there was less affinity in the suburbs than there was in the city for it. He arm-twisted. I remember on the floor of council him pointing to one councillor who will remain nameless and saying, you're going to fry in your own grease if you don't support <laughs> this. And then Dominic and I and uh, uh, Chris Offerson and I think Terry Anderson showed up at the game yeah. only to be pelted with garbage. <laughs> we, had, we had supported Pops motion. Oh, it's a day that will live in infamy in my mind. <laughs> you can laugh about it now. It was great fun. And, you know, well, and again, by, by the next day, literally, to Bob's credit, he could not stay angry. So you could disagree and go hammer and tongs at one another, and the next day you'd be having a, a beer together, and, and he was he was a forgiving soul. And I think that is one of the reasons he survived as long as he did and one of the reasons he prospered politically because you've got to have that thick skin and you've got to be able to roll once the debate is over and move on to the next issue, and Fred knows that well. Well, there's another incident, Fred, uh, if you recall, when Bob wanted uh, funding for a, there was the Eaton Center, some corridor or something, I can't remember, something that had to be done in Jackson Square, and he fought. You know, and he lost the vote. I think it was fifteen to one or whatever it was on city council. And I've, he was so red in the face. I, th- I thought, my God, you know, please, you know, get the paramedics here. Uh, yeah. And he was so angry that day that he was so embarrassed by that. And and one of the councillors, not me, not you, said standing recorded vote, which adds to the embarrassment. Oh. But and oh, but yeah. you're right. The next the next day, it was like, yeah, well, that's you know, that's probably the best anyway. But you know, but he was he was so incredibly passionate about these sorts of things. So just to correct the football uh, story, uh, it, was, uh, it was actually Terry Cook, myself, and Dominic Agostino and Terry oh, Anderson uh, that, that went to the game. I, I remember Terry Anderson took off as soon as he uh, realized that the crowd was a little hostile. I see. I couldn't and see the they, faces. I couldn't see the faces because they're throwing programs yeah. at you. But when, <laughs> yeah, but when you when you announced the uh, that that it actually passed, 
great cheer went out in the crowd, and thankfully you didn't announce those that didn't support it, which happened to be the three of us that were sitting in the uh, stadium at the time. Uh, we would have uh, we would have been lynched if they found out that uh, we were not the supporters, but uh, it passed in any event. You know, Bob Bob was uh, Bob was the the kind of character that uh, was really steep in history. I uh, really liked the pomp and circumstance of uh, ceremony, and he, uh, he he would do that uh, exceptionally well. Uh, and and he was really passionate about the issues that he uh, latched onto, and uh, really didn't accept uh, no as an answer, and would come back at it uh, you know time and time again if he didn't get his way the first time. And uh, you know he 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 lost gracefully, but he certainly got very angry, and you could see it happen in real time. Uh, his face would just get flushed. Uh, he would go completely red, and uh, and you knew that uh, Bob was going to explode at some point. And but it wouldn't last long. And uh, the next day he was uh, patting backs again and uh, really working on the next issue. So, you know what the, the kind of uh, ups and downs you get in politics. Uh, but Bob uh, Bob had the kind of character that uh, he would wear it on his sleeve and. He would, uh, he would show you his emotions, and then uh, when it was over, he'd, he'd give you a big hug. Well, we got to wrap it up, guys. I wish we had more time to do this, but uh, I, I just want to finish it off by suggesting, uh, and Fred, uh, counsel in their wisdom, of course, have decided to name the forecourt at City Hall in honor of Bob Moore. I guess there's going to be a ceremony about that a little bit later on, a couple of weeks or months? Yeah, couple, uh, probably a couple of months. We were hoping to do it in nicer weather. And, uh, yeah, and we good idea. In conjunction with the, uh, with the, uh, the signage, sign uh, uh, the installation that's happening uh, March, early April. Uh, so we'll uh, unfortunately do it posthumously, and that's uh, unfortunate. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll certainly connect with the family and see what their wish is and, uh, and their timing, and we'll, we'll coordinate. And a lot more stories at that time. Fred Eisenberger, Hamilton Mayor, Terry Cook, CEO of the Hamilton Community Foundation. Guys, thanks so much for the time today. Greatly appreciated. Bill, can I mention just, just briefly, we, 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 the flags are flying at half-mast. We have a, a, a condolences book uh, set up here at City Hall for anyone out in the community that uh, wants to reflect and uh, provide some uh, remembrance. They can come into City Hall and uh, write something on that book. And they can go online on our website and, uh, and share some reminiscences as well. And we'll compile all of that and give that to the family. Excellent. Thanks again, guys. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I, I don't know how many of us actually pour over the statistics in the financial section of the newspaper or listen to the financial reports uh, on the radio uh, each and every day. I mean, we have passive interest, I don't think, for many of us. But uh, we maybe after the lesson we learned in 2009 with the economic downturn and recession, uh, start to get uh, a little antsy when we start hearing stories like we did yesterday uh, about the uh, the downturn in the, the stock markets. This actually started on Friday, but it continued rather dramatically Yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged over a thousand points, erasing its gains for the year. Uh, we're telling, being told things like the Standard and Poor's 500, which is the benchmark for many index funds, fell 113 points. The Nasdaq fell 273, or 3.8 uh, percent. Is the sky falling? Are we heading down towards dangerous times? What's going on, and how long is this going to last? Joining us to try to uh, add some. Clarity to this is our good friend Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, how are you this morning? I'm just great, uh, Bill. You're not uh, hiding under a table waiting for the sky to no. fall here? No, the sky is not falling. The world is not coming to an end. We are not all going to die. And no, this is uh, not a, uh, a crisis or a calamity. I, I want to put this because, of course, the headlines are really scary to a sure. lot of people. And they say, you know... Oh, my God, a thousand points. We have to uh, contextualize or whatever word we want to use um, um, uh, the, the numbers. But, you know, some people talk about the Depression, a bigger drop well, than in the Depression. The Dow was, I believe, 300 points in the Depression. It was 25,000 last Thursday. So what I'm trying to say is we're comparing apples and kumquats and spaceships and, I don't know, what other completely unlike objects. And that's why we... Uh, we normalize the data by turning everything into percentages. This is grade five arithmetic. And where I'm going with this, let me just give you a couple of uh, instances. Please. The, the yesterday's drop, okay, was about the last two days, was 5% of the base, which is the total value of the stock exchange. The 1987 drop, so we won't go all the way back to the Depression. The 1987, when the market fell through the floor, was twenty, almost 23%. So why I'm saying uh, we have to contextualize it is you have to compare. I'm, I, so forgive me for getting it a little bit of a arithmetic. 
you got to divide the numerator by the denominator. In other words, the number you're talking about divided by the base. And the base of the stock exchange is way, way, way bigger today. And for those who still aren't following me, it's like somebody saying to me, as a student once did, well, the U.S. is 10 times better than Canada because its GDP is 10 times bigger. Well, that's a meaningless statement. Of course it is. They've got 10 times the population. So we turn it into percentages to say, how bad is it? Now, I'm not trying to sugarcoat this. This was a significant correction yesterday. Markets overshoot regularly in real estate markets, as we know. They overshoot in other markets, and they overshoot in the stock market. And I think that the market did overshoot is a part of its so-called price discovery and trying to find the optimal price. And now the markets are correcting themselves, and this is classified, I think, as a very major correction, but it's by no means the end of the world or anything like that. Let me ask you, maybe again, in, in, in the pretext of, 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 of some background on this and, and contextualizing this, uh, the markets have had it pretty good for about the last year and a half or so. I mean, I know Trump wants to take all the credit for that, but that yeah. actually started long before he took the oath of office uh, and, and was, or even was elected president. Because uh, yeah. we always refer back as one of the benchmarks, 2019, and say, oh, my God, it was awful. Here we go again. Yeah. But there's been a pretty steady increase and in, in some pretty oh. strong days for the market since then. I would argue, <laughs> I'm going to agree with you and go farther. <laughs> I think the market did overshoot. I think there was, I'm going to give credit to Trump before I then criticize Trump, okay? Uh, the market overshot because they said, holy Moses, we got this guy in the White House. He- I think I think we just lost Ian. Uh, well, we'll try to rehook uh, and get up back in here in just a couple of seconds because this is an important thing. Uh, I mean, because you, you look at, and I think Ian mentioned this just a second ago, you look at the headline. I mean, one of the ones I saw in one of the papers today, I think it was one of the New York papers, Dow Jones sees largest point drop in history. Uh, that's kind of frightening because we already know what can happen when there are major things like going on like this, and it has an impact on, on prices, on interest rates, uh, and so many different things that can happen. And you start to think, oh, my gosh, are we heading down here? What, what's going to happen to us? Is this going to affect me? What about what about the markets? What about prices? What about real estate? Because you know, it's all obviously connected in one way or another. And when we hear stories like this and see headlines like this, and uh, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily all bombastic stuff because, as Ian said, there are some things that we need to be concerned about here. And heavy losses uh, deepening a slump that began on Friday, that tells you, about, well, there's a trend going on. But for those of us who only get little snippets of this, and then we hear terms like a correction, and you have to ask yourself, well, what does that actually mean? And I think I think that's the concern that a lot of us have. I think we're reconnected with Ian now. Are you back with us, Ian? Yes, I am, Good. and my apologies. Oh, not um, a problem. I, I, Bill, I want to bring something out. I, I think the market was very excited. Uh, the euphoria over the corporate profit making that they anticipated was going to happen under Trump because of all the good things he was doing from their point of view, cutting taxes, deregulation. But where I, what I want to point is, I am giving uh, Trump a lot of the credit for the market going up. But I think what's happened now is the market, the investors, when I say the market, the investors, are realizing that the economy is red hot. It's operating at basically 100% flat-out capacity. And now along comes this $1.5 trillion tax cut, and they think this is going to embed inflation into the system. And that, in turn, leads them to conclude they know that the Fed and the other central banks won't put up with that. They won't go through the mistakes of the 1970s when inflation got embedded, went up to 8 to 10 to 12%. So they're anticipating now much more aggressive and significant interest rate increases in 2018, which will reduce profits, which is causing investors to pull back from the marketplace. So he, I argue, Trump is overstimulating the economy with that tax. All right, I want to talk to you about that because I've heard that line of thought over the last 24 hours, and I'm hearing arguments both pro and con to that. And and, and again, the, the argument seems to be uh, that, that Trump's insistence on the tax cuts in, in the budget that was passed had more to do with the political gain that, that any economist would have said, this is not what's necessary. As a matter of fact, it could be harmful. Right. And I know even when yep. that was passed, Ian, a number of economists went on record as saying, don't do this. It's going to have a negative impact on the markets. Yep. Well, it has. Yeah. Well, in fact, it's based on very classic Keynesianism that every I think everybody, Canadian, American, economist, non-economist, believes for the past 70, 80 years. When the economy goes into the tank, we call it a recession, there's cries across the land, stimulate, run up the deficit, pump, pump stimulus into the system, because we know it works. It turns the economy around. 
But the counter, the, the flip of that argument is you should take the stimulus back when the economy is growing. And right now, both countries, Canada and the States, have been running deficits, which is stimulus, and interest rates at an un- unprecedented low level, which is monetary stimulus, and the economy is going flat out. Like, this is, this is not <laughs> a prudent, rational thing to do. When the economy is going red hot, you should take the stimulus away and keep it for the rainy day when you do need the sim. So I'm not one of these people who say government should never go into deficit. I'm saying there's no need to have a deficit like we're doing in Canada and the United States when the economy is going flat out at 100%. All right, so so here's the conundrum we're in. I mean, the numbers are the numbers, and this, yep. as you say, is being characterized as a correction. Uh, yep. Not the first time we've heard a market term like that. But the tax cuts aren't going away. Uh, you know, he's not going to no. rescind them and say, whoops, I think I made a mistake. I don't think Trump's ever admitted yep. to making a mistake. So yep. they're with us. How, how does the market correct itself from the correction now? Well, what it's going to do, it's going to drive down these valuations on average, as we've seen. And by the way, I, I don't want to sugarcoat it when I call it a correction. It's a big correction. It's a major correction. So I'm not trying to trivialize it. I'm just saying in context of other market corrections, it's by no means the biggest. Some people are saying, you know, look at this. It's the largest decline in the stock market ever. And people say, oh, my God, this is the worst ever. Well, that's only because they're comparing it to previous declines with a much smaller sized stock market. That's why we got to turn it into percentages. And when you do, this is by no means the biggest drop in the stock market. But to answer your question, the markets are adjusting by the share prices, driving them down because they anticipate significant increases in interest rates. And where I didn't finish that thought, on contrary to Premier Wynne in Ontario, who has suggested over and over that all businesses or most businesses are just rolling in, in gargantuan amounts of cash and they can just absorb these rate increase, minimum wage increases, most businesses, and I'm saying this as a former banker, are leveraged. And some businesses are over-leveraged, like consumers. They owe a huge amount. When you hear the story of Apple computers sitting on billions and billions of dollars of uh, money in their bank uh, from profits abroad, that is an extremely unusual situation. Most businesses owe money. Operating lines of credit, lines of credit on the buildings, on the plant and the equipment. And so when rates go up, this comes straight out of the bottom line. It comes straight out of their profitability. And so this is, and of course, it slows down the economy. So that's why they're adjusting the share prices downward to reflect this new perception of where the economy is going. And so what I think, what the, the takeaway, Bill, is this. The party is over. And I mean the party of low, low, low interest rates. What the market is saying to everybody, put on your seatbelt because we're going to see significant increases in interest rates over the next 12, 18, 24, 36 months. Significant increases in interest rates. That's what the market is saying. One of the things I'm concerned about, we just spent a whole week doing segments about portfolios and investments, et cetera, since it's kind of that time of year where that's front of center for an awful lot of people. When something yep. like this happens, you know there are people who are going to say, oh, my God, I'm going to have to sell. i got to get out of here now before I lose my shirt. Uh, and, and there could be panic selling uh, in situations like this. Is, is there a concern that that could go on, in, on, on, on a mega scale, or is, is, uh, is the market um, ready to absorb stuff like that? I think it'll absorb it. You know, there's this funny economy. Everyone knows who Ben Stein, the comedian, is. Yeah. His father, Herb Stein, was a very impressive and important economist back in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And he coined this very funny, witty phrase about economics. He said, if something can't go on forever... Don't worry, it won't. It will stop. <laughs> you know, in other words, what he was saying in that witty line, at least I think it's witty, is markets adjust. And so I, I don't, you know, I know Krugman is saying in his column this morning in the New York Times, Paul Krugman, distinguished yeah. Nobel Prize yes. winner, but remember, he won his Nobel Prize in trade theory, not in market uh, analysis. That's not to trivialize him, but he's saying, oh, this is going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy and the thing is going to turn into a, a runaway uh, collapse. And I, 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 whenever I hear these doom and gloom uh, arguments, the fundamentals, and I'm talking the growth in the economy, uh, capacity, employment, you look at those fundamentals and there's no our, our basis empirically, factually, for saying that we're on the edge of a collapse. I just, I'm not, there is an adjustment coming. I do think we are going to hit a recession sooner or later because this is the second longest business recovery since the Depression. And all business recoveries come to an end. It's the business cycle. 
In other words, a growth period followed by recession, followed by growth, etc. So it's going to end. We, uh, every uh, growth period uh, ends, and we'll go into another recession. How deep it will be or how shallow it will be, nobody knows. But And so this one will come to an end. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't, I'm not suggesting or, uh, that this is going to happen now. People will adjust. Remember, bond, as stocks are going down, uh, bond prices are going up. So, you know, and, and this is make, making, there's always pluses and minuses. When the rates go up, this is making our pension plans more solvent. It's paradox, but the pension plans, a lot of the insolvency in the last five years across Canada and the United States, I'm talking when you heard about Sears and all that, was caused by the, the, the ultra-low interest rates, which drove down the return on investments that the pension plans need. So if somebody's looking for the silver cloud in the lining of this story, it is by interest rates going up, it's going to uh, un- reduce the insolvency in many, many of our pension plans across Canada and the United States. So I'm I'm not going to start doling out financial advice, and I wouldn't ask you to do that either. No, but for anybody who's <laughs> who's getting a little skittish about this, the best advice I, that I've been told over the years is ch- chill out, sit tight, everything's going exactly. to be fine. Just wait it out. Invest the long run. I I've now I don't believe in day trading. I do not day trade. I'm not a professional financial advisor, but I do walk my own advice, and I think that investing in the stock market is a long run proposition, like real estate. I was never a real estate flipper, uh, meaning you you know buy and you flip it within six or twelve months. I've made a lot of money, like a lot of boomers in real estate, by simply buying and sitting on it and renovating it. Likewise with stocks, you buy if it's a good value stock, and you just sit on it. And I know there'll be out there people who say, no, they're smarter than the market and they can do day trading and make money. And God bless them. I'm not smart enough to do that. So I believe in let mother time or father time uh, generate my rate of return. And the stock market over the long run has gone up from the very beginning of the history of the United States and Canada. How long is this going to go on? I mean, again, I'm asking it as crystal balls, guys. But, I mean, the Nikkei index has been affected by this. Canadian market's yeah. obviously affected by this. Uh, we're told that uh, the Dow started off rather shakily this morning. But uh, yeah. is, is there a chance that we might start seeing recovery in the next day or two? I think we probably will, because when a market drops that precipitously, uh, you know, a 5% decline is not trivial, let me tell you, on a, uh, you know, in, a, in an economy the size of the United States. It's a $20 trillion economy. And then people start to realize the market overshot in the other direction. Markets can overshoot on the upside and the downside. You know, we've seen that. So and it's not just stock markets. Currency markets can overshoot, you know, down or up. You know, I've seen times when the Kandor was driven down in the low 70s, which is absurd. The natural value, then you can compute the natural value of the canned dollar. It's around 80, 82 cents. So when you see the dollar going down to 72, 73, you know the market is overshot on the downside. Likewise, capital markets, stock exchanges can overshoot both downside and upside. So that's when the speculators will come in and say, hey, wait a minute, there's some good values here now. And then they'll bring it back up. I'm not suggesting the markets are going to recover all of the losses in the last 48 or 72 hours. I think we're seeing a correction downward. But it's, I, I do think that there's, for those people who do sniff around for those short-term opportunities, I'm sure there are some values in there that people could uh, find if they were willing to spend the time, which I'm not, to find it and they could make some money. But, but I, I, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that the predicting, at all suggesting that this is a predictor of a, of a recession to come, although I will acknowledge that this recovery is the second longest recovery since the depression and you know that's that's really something all by itself so it's going to come to an end no government no political party no political leader no president has ever abolished the business cycle and it's going to come to an end and then we'll go into another recession like we did in 2008-9 very quickly got about a minute or so left here you mentioned about the federal reserve and how they're going to respond to this uh what does mr paulos do at the bank of canada is he just sitting and watching at this stage I think he is sitting and watching very, very closely. First, what, what is the Fed doing? Uh, the Federal Reserve, which is the Central Bank of the United States, of course. They have a brand-new governor who was sworn in, I think it was yesterday. Talk about a <laughs> There's a nice president. Yeah, welcome so, to the I new think, job, sir. Here's your... <laughs> well, yeah, here's, here's your new job, by the way. The market just... Yeah, fix this, would you please? Points. So, he, he, you know, he's going to have his hands full, but uh, we're, we're going to be watching what the Fed does very, very closely. There's no doubt about that. Ian, thanks as always. Great to get your perspective on this. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care. Ian Lee, of course, from the Spot School of Business at Carleton University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. 
It's uh, time for the Chiefs Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is with us here in studio. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in today. You too, Bill. Thanks for having me. A lot of stuff going on today. I know that you made your budget presentation, your overview anyway, to City Council uh, a little while ago. Uh, and during the discussions, uh, there was one element that came up from uh, Councillor Samarula, and it was about CCTV cameras, Now, which were a very controversial thing, I guess, when they were instituted some years ago. Uh, I, I get the impression that they're pretty much commonplace right now, and I think the overwhelming majority of people are okay with these. But uh, Councillor Marula's idea was uh, to, uh, I guess, amend the bylaw here in the city to have people uh, that have closed-circuit TV cameras to actually be able to point them to the street as opposed to the current element of the bylaw, which says that it has to be pointed at their property right now. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think there are some pros and cons to that. Uh, that may be Sam Rule on the phone calling you right now, but <laughs> I can put that on silent. Okay, we're good to go. Uh, anyway, your thoughts about that whole idea about, about turning the cameras around? Well, I think we know uh, the prevalence of CCTV cameras, but also in businesses uh, where it's pointed at the public. It leads to uh, solutions in crimes, identification of suspects. Uh, you referenced earlier the Bosma case, and, uh, you know, part of my premise for presenting the budget was on the digital tidal wave. Well, a lot of the evidentiary increases we're seeing is exactly that. Cameras, um, digital evidence, whether it's computer towers, iPads, on and on it goes. Uh, but we do know that those cameras do help solve crimes. Uh, I think the issue uh, with use in personal homes is more uh, where the field of vision encompasses, you know, your neighbor's side window into, you know, wherever that space is. It could be a bathroom, it could be a living room, um, and, you know, people have expectations of privacy there. We even talked about uh, the budget presentation with regard to drones. And of course, if you've got a drone patrolling on the neighborhoods, looking in somebody's backyard, again, they have an expectation of privacy. So I think that's what the private Privacy Commission has wrestled with for years. But to your point, uh, where it's in a public space where there is no expectation of privacy, uh, we rely on those cameras quite extensively. Well, to use the Bosma example, and I understand that there was uh, closed-circuit TV footage that was used uh, in the hangar itself, and that, I guess, is self-explanatory. But the the ones that were used uh, from the cameras that were all on businesses uh, in the Ancaster area near the Bosma home, I think in, during that trial went a long way towards uh, indicating passage of vehicles, who was doing what in time frames, which was critical, I think, in, in, in that trial. Exactly. And, you know, we have to patch it together. That's part of our evidentiary requirements. One, to maintain the evidentiary integrity of the information. Two, and I've talked about it before, you know, most or many of us know the 12 o'clock flashing uh, time span on your VCR or now whatever digital equipment you're using. Uh, so we have to make sure the time is right. But yes, you can link together in a very compelling way, particularly for juries. Here's what happened in these time spans. And you see the people on camera, right? So the refutation of I wasn't there doesn't really go a long way because uh, you can either see the vehicle or the people inside the vehicle. Uh, even the latest homicide in Toronto, uh, they've released pictures of the suspect um, right there at the time of. It puts him at, in the area at the time of uh, the disappearance. So, you know, it's, it's pivotal for us. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of technical requirements to get it right. But I, I agree with you. It's, it's very compelling at, at trial. The catalyst for the discussion, as I understand it, uh, at the city council table anyway, uh, had to do with neighborhood safety, which is always a concern. And, and uh, you, you track statistics on this, Chief, about what's going on and, and where hot spots may well be. Uh, what is the status? Is it getting worse? Councillors seem to be getting more calls about things like break-ins, vandalism, things of this nature. Do you, are you tracking that? Well, we track all kinds of things, break and enters, um, you know, the whole range of crimes. We have seen some increases in, in the violent crime, which we're aware of, and it's a marginal increase. But overall, the crime rates have been coming down for the last five years across Canada and our jurisdiction. Property crimes in particular have been dropping. And a lot of that may have to do with exactly that, you know, camera on the shed, on your backyard, uh, those type of things. And so if you use that equipment to safeguard your, your own uh, property, there's no problem with it. And of course, um, now we've had a recent case law decision with America, uh, which is a December 8th ruling, and uh, we now have to get judicial authority to get that equipment. It's created an administrative burden on us, but we'll get over that. Um, the Supreme Court's decided with third-party interests. So, you know, that issue of privacy is very much alive. 
Uh, from Don on Twitter at CHML, Bill Kelly suggesting a great idea, but uh, what about the idea with cameras on the police officers themselves? Again, not a new issue, but the idea of the lapel cameras or yep. the, the dashboard cameras, uh, yep. which are used in different dur- jurisdictions. What's the status of that? Well, let's go back to in-car video, which I actually was the project manager back in the early 90s, uh, particularly for impaired driving. And quite frankly, it didn't get used very often in court. Uh, defense did not access it that frequently. We do have uh, video cameras in our breathalyzer rooms for interviews, all those other areas. With respect to body-worn cameras, and we've been looking at the research now for about four years, um, and looking at uh, cross-jurisdictional being uh, not only the States, but in the UK and elsewhere, the original premise was you would see reductions both in complaints and use of force. And quite frankly, we haven't seen that precipitous drop. Um, the number of calls we actually get use of force complaints on is about 12 to 15 in a year. Uh, and we do uh, several hundred thousand calls in a year, personal contact. Uh, so if you're looking at changing those 10 to 15, uh, there is a huge uh, digital um, stress on the system. You have to store the stuff. You have to edit it. You have to redact it. Third-party interests. There's privacy issues if the officers have them all the time. I've talked about it before. I've seen the uh, video on the, in, the body-worn cameras from the Pulse nightclub shooting. Um, quite frankly, you, you half the time you're disoriented. You can't tell what's going on because, of course, you know where the position is on the body relative to the officer entering. And in that case, it was a dark nightclub with uh, lights on, you know, your typical nightclub. Uh, it's very disorienting as to what's going on. Can they help? They can. Um, you know, for the cost and the evidentiary workload to it. I don't know that it has the same merits. Again, uh, testimony is very important. And uh, again, on the cameras, they have cameras now that exceed human capabilities. So if the assertion is, well, the officer saw that, not necessarily. If the uh, equipment exceeds our capacity, then they may not have seen certain things in the definition that they have. Also, is the officer's head turned elsewhere while the camera is pointed in another direction? It still requires a full uh, investigation. It requires witness statements. Uh, it's a piece of the puzzle, but it's not, uh, in my view, the magic solution. How reliable are these things? I mean, in jurisdictions where they are used, because, I mean, I've seen some of that footage. Clearly, Chief, not as much as you have, but uh, the, the the criticism I've heard more often than not is, look, at, they, they don't offer peripheral vision. That it's 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 bang on, like it's at a ninety degree angle from from where the camera is, and you can see it. And there's, it's you know it's it's not tunnel vision, I said, but but you're right, you can't see necessarily side to side, and there could be things going on there that uh, that simply aren't going to be covered by a camera. That's right, and then the other one is they've had some kind of fisheye lenses that they deployed out in the field, and of course things are distorted. Yes, you get more of the situation, but it's not exactly clear. Um, so our, our other problems in in a northern capacity is battery life. Uh, when do you turn it on? When do you turn it off? Um, voice and video together. Uh, there's lots of requirements. Also, you know, with the COI legislation that's come out, the collection of information, certain circumstances, uh, prohibitions and duties. I didn't name it, but that's the name of the act. Um, there are requirements and people have expectations of privacy if you're being stopped and now you're filming them and uh, they don't even want to give their name. Well, what are those expectations? Because, uh, again, I, I've talked to some of the frontline officers yep. about their interest in this and uh, it's kind of split from the, from the people I've talked to. And this is not scientific, just the conversations I've had when the opportunity has presented itself. And, and they've asked, some, I think, some very germane questions. Uh, if I go to a, a to a, a domestic dispute, do I turn the camera on? Exactly. I, I don't know. Am I allowed to? Uh, am I imposing on, on on their individual rights or their right to privacy? Uh, even if it's a, a you say a traffic stop, do you turn the camera on? Uh, and, and again, they're asking questions. I mean, sure. they're not necessarily saying, "Hey, it's a bad idea." Uh, because we don't know one way or another, but nobody seemed to have, have come up with a definitive policy that's going to work that, in, in situations like that. Well, and we opened the discussion around privacy rights uh, relative to CCTV cameras. Uh, to your uh, example with the domestic situation, <clears throat> now I may have recording of the interior of the building um, that can be then analyzed. Uh, children present, youth present. What are their expectations around privacy and how do you handle that? And then for disclosure in court, 
When I talk about redacting and editing, that's what I'm talking about, is often the privacy interests of other people. If you respond to a hospital for some situation, uh, you may be capturing medical information uh, if the board is present, or even, you know, they have whiteboards now describing the status of the patient. Uh, these are all considerations, so there's no easy answer to it. Um, and in terms of evidence gathering, again, uh, as you know, in the court process, it often relies on what did the person interpret, see, Again, what is their impression, whether it's a witness or our own officers, what is their impression versus just, you know, here's footage of it. How reliable from a technological standpoint are these? Because some of the more controversial things that have gone on to YouTube, and it seems that most of them seem to be from U.S. jurisdictions, where I guess these are used a lot more often than they are in Canadian jurisdictions. Uh, there'll be a, a crisis moment in, in, a, in, a, in a setup uh, or a crisis situation for that matter, and then all of a sudden uh, the camera's off or the camera gets jiggled or something, and, and the cry goes out all of a sudden, ah, they see the cop turned it off because things were getting bad, or did they, or did the battery die, or what happened? Uh, it happens from time to time. So, I mean, I, I guess the question, the overarching question here is, are they reliable enough when it comes down to testimony and actually trying to get a definitive idea as to what's going on? And probably the better answer, I remember seeing some footage, it's in regard to a shooting that was down in the States, and the body-worn camera is on, but the audio is not. And you see the officer raising fire on a person who's walking towards him. You say, oh, my God, he just shot him. Then they show the second body-worn camera, which is an officer behind that person, and you can see uh, the subject reaching for a silver handgun plainly in their waistband. They actually get a hold of it, start to draw it. But just with the angle of the camera, you can't see the person's right arm from the purse perspective. The officer in the second perspective, audio was on, is saying he has a gun, he has a gun. So if you just rely on the one camera alone, you'd say, oh, my God, unarmed person shot for no reason. Two perspectives, you go, ooh, that was a little bit different story. So it requires the fulsome nature of all witnesses. What did they see? Uh, what was the perspective? I think any time you do it. Uh, limitations, uh, again, because it's a fix to the body, if you end up in a physical struggle, can it get bumped off? Can the mic get affected? Uh, those are all considerations. Again, for us and, and part of the Canadian challenge is uh, we, we ride 12-hour shifts. You know, the battery life just isn't that long yet on the uh, lithium batteries. Then, if you make a decision operationally and policy-wise to run at the full course, we know that it's not going to run for 12 hours. So now you're switching batteries in between, and oh, was that when you switched the battery? Did you turn it off? And then the broader policy decision, which you just talked about, when do you turn it on, when do you turn it off? If you're dealing with a complainant on a sexual assault, and I've got the camera running, I'm not sure that they want to particularly disclose for all the world to see at that very vulnerable moment. It requires empathy and skill to get disclosure in the first place. So if they know the camera's running, it can be an inhibition to get the disclosure. What about from a, a cost standpoint? Uh, these things are not inexpensive. Uh, is, is it practical that every officer on that shift is, is equipped with a camera, or do you have to be selective? Yeah, and the, the costs fundamentally don't deal with the equipment so much. They've, they've come down, and uh, as you see in many cases, uh, vendors are marketing it and say, we'll give you the stuff free. The cost is on the storage of digital information. The cost is on the analysis of that, the people to do the redaction, to review it, to supervise it. That's where the bulk of the costs are. And we have, in fact, presented that to our board a number of times and said, okay, here's the price tag, kind of small, medium, large. Um, if you dispense on a pilot, it'll cost you this. Um, there's some economies of scale, but primarily it's the handling of that digital evidence that is quite costly. So are you sitting and waiting right now? Because I know there are, there are other jurisdictions that are doing these on test cases right now. Are you gathering more information at this stage, or have you made a definitive uh, uh, call on, on which way you want to go on this? Uh, we've done three presentations aboard currently. Uh, there was a large pilot in Toronto. Um, we've looked at the results of that. Some jurisdictions in Canada have now withdrawn them for a variety of reasons. Some is equipment issues, uh, some are uh, storage issues. Um, in the States, similar type of thing, and like I say, in the UK. Um, so we continue to look at it. Um, really, if you look at the fundamental reason, again, why we're getting into the business, it was to reduce uh, incidents of, uh, of violence or use of force with members of the public. And in some jurisdictions, they saw it actually go up. Um, not all. Uh, the evidence is not convincing one way or the other. And again, uh, the reduction of those complaints, 
didn't necessarily get reduced. Some of those small cases, Rialto is a good example. It was a small community to begin with. If you have a you know two hundred percent reduction, but you only had four uh, complaints in the first place, um, you know we're talking about the scale here. So yeah, uh, the, really the results have not been definitive. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Chiefs Town Hall with a uh, Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert uh, from uh, Kevin on uh, email says uh, Hess Village situation. I favor police charging Hess Village for extra policing. Uh, what's the status there at Hess? That was a rather contentious issue. I know things tend to cool off a little bit in the winter uh, because the outdoor patios aren't there. But uh, uh, is is it an area that that seems to be settling down a little bit, or is there still a concern there? Uh, we were tracking this, and as you know, Councillor Farr moved a motion to have the bylaw struck. Uh, we had meetings about that and looked at the actual calls for service, um, the actual attendance, and uh, there still is a need. It, it's not as large as it used to be uh, when the bylaw was first constructed, but there's still a need there. So our compromise, and we'd already been moving towards it anyway, was decreased number of officers uh, based on the attendance. So we're continuing with that. Uh, they still are uh, required to fund part of that, and we are as well. We took... Uh, we took some of the hit as well in terms of financial implications, but uh, you know, between <coughs> what happens if they don't fund that, then we draw it out of the regular complement, and that affects calls for service and timely responses and all those other things. So it is a specific need relative to an entertainment district, and uh, the bylaw is still in place, but with reduced numbers. I, I know the immediate concern, and the, probably the picture people create in their minds on when you talk about Hess Village is, is, is intoxication and, and lewd behavior. I mean, you've heard all of those stories. Uh, but there were also concerns from police a, a couple of years ago about, uh, shall we say, extracurricular activities that were going on in that area. Uh, a lot of bikers and, and things of that nature. And there might have been the sale of some illegal substances that were going on. Do you track that? Do you see that happening to, to the same extent it was then? Well, you pretty much covered the gamut of all the issues that appear down there. Um, has that changed? The fundamentals haven't changed. Um, so that's why our presence is there. And, of course, disturbances and fights, and it's been linked to not directly, but, you know, homicides in the immediate area or aggravated assaults. So it's it's all about, you know, trying to reduce our violent crime. If we can do it through presence and deterrence, and of course, mounted patrol units often there, our action officers stop in there as well, and then you have the special duty officers. So uh, it's really to <clears throat> keep law and order, you know, the fundamentals of policing. Uh, so that work continues. And yes, all the things you've described. Uh, from Phil on email, bkelly at 900chml.com. If somebody's involved in a road rage incident whereby one driver gets out of their car and approaches the other car, how should they handle it? Uh, do you confront the uh, the individual? Do you defend yourself? Do you drive away? Do you call police? What's what's the protocol or the suggestion, really? Uh, I would stay in your car for one thing, and depending on just how violent the person is in the road rage incident, if you don't step out, uh, quite likely you're not going to have a fight. If they reach in through the window or if you get into a disturbance otherwise, they smash the window, well, that's a whole other dimension. Uh, if you have the time, I would be phoning the police to come and attend, and we know the behavior of some people, but you've now turned into a, a traffic complaint, basically to a fight on the street. Well, we don't advocate for fights on the street. Uh, that's what it is. So, you know, if you feel threatened, uh, certainly give us a call. We've seen situations where it's extremely dangerous, particularly on the 400 series highways. Uh, you saw that incident where the uh, person pulled in front of the other person, places them at risk because traffic's still going 100K. Um, that's life-threatening. So, you know, my recommendation was if you can get out of there safely, do it. You know, it's not about having nice friendly chat about what just happened, uh, your safety is paramount. I, I, and again, I don't want to get into the psychology of this, but I mean, if somebody who's really angry is coming towards you in an angry fashion, I, I would think that if you actually get out of the car, they're going to look at that as a confrontation. Like, in other words, they're coming to challenge me now. Uh, and that, that might only get, exacerbates the situation. Uh, you've just stated it. <laughs> That's exactly right. So anyway, because uh, you're not going to have a friendly, civilized chat about um, uh, perhaps you should have yielded on that last uh, stretch of highway and I'd make suggestions for the future. It's not looking like uh, that. The language is usually a lot more colorful than Correct. that. I get that. Yes. Uh, Chiefs Town Hall, Hamilton Chief Police Eric Gerd is here. Uh, speaking of which, I know that there has been a concern uh, in the last little while about impaired driving. Uh, I, I know that you mentioned a couple of times now that you're tracking various levels of, of, of crime and concern that uh, in policing issues. Uh, impaired driving is something we talk about around the holidays with the ride programs. We should, I guess, remind people that the ride programs are in place all year long. But, uh, and I had this conversation with Klaus 
uh, Wagner a little while ago, but you know, the, he says you'd be surprised about the incidents of, of impaired driving that we're seeing right now. Uh, and it, it's baffling to, to the police I've talked to, Chief, because they're figuring the information is out there. They know that we're out there looking for them. They know it's wrong. This is not like it was 30 or 40 years ago where it said, oh, that's a little pat on the back. You really shouldn't do that anymore. The, uh, the penalties are pretty serious for that, yet there seems to be an increase. What's going on? Uh, well, to your point, you know, people just aren't getting the message. We do know uh, that the age group is actually older than you might expect. It's generally in the 35 to 45-year category where we have either uh, first offenses or recidivism, being repeat offenses. Uh, we do average around 670 to 680 charges per year in this jurisdiction. When I was first a breath tech, you know, back in the uh, late 80s, we were looking at 1,200, 1,300 uh, cases per year, which is substantial. But to your point, you've had all this education, alternative you know, ways to get home, designated drivers. Certainly people are aware of it. Uh, but we're seeing uh, cases where we have breath alcohol readings in the vicinity of 200 milligrams or above, sometimes 273. Um, you know, that's, that's a fairly high reading. Well, this is the thing that I'm surprised when I talk to, to people like Klaus and others. They're saying some of these readings are like way off the charts. I mean, it's not like, oh, they've had one drink too many. They're bombed. Oh, definitely. And they're physically affected. And, you know, it's pretty clearly observable. You know, one thing I will do is is emphasize the number of Operation Lookouts we've had where members of the public phone in. We had one just last night. You know, uh, again, around the 150 mark. We view that as a very positive thing because I, I know the general public sees these as life-threatening situations. They call us. We stop the person before there's an accident, hopefully, and, you know, they face the consequences of that. So there's certainly public support around the reduction. Uh, you look at Mad Canada. You look at all the agencies. Uh, listen to testimonial from a person affected by drunk driving. And, you know, it's, it's still happening frequently enough. And even with regard, now they're not all impaired driving, but, you know, the number of fatalities in this jurisdiction usually exceed the number of homicides we have. Uh, those are still people affected, uh, lives and families. Um, it still remains a critical issue. So, you know, whether you phone us, if you see somebody getting in the car with the keys and you think they shouldn't, if you don't want to get in a wrestling match, you know, we'll call it a road rage incident over, uh, I'm going to drive. Well, I don't think you should. And okay, if you don't want to intervene and get the keys off them, then give us a call. Uh, it's you could be saving somebody's life. Cheryl on email bkelly nine hundred chml dot com. Do the police have a position on the barriers on the link in the Red Hill? That's been uh, well. This is what one she's talking about. One's been debated uh, the last number of months now by Hamilton City Council. It's really a traffic engineering function. But but you will from time to time as police comment on things that yeah. if you think there's a safety issue. Um, I don't know that it reduces the issue because we do know that excessive speed, aggressive driving, and distracted driving are the primary concerns. So for us, uh, and we have continued enforcement in that, uh, yes, they've done the traffic uh, measures like bigger signs, um, <clears throat> education, uh, you know, a number of traffic engineering approaches. Uh, it's not always a guarantee with a split highway. Um, could it help? It could, uh, particularly with crossover situations, which, of course, uh, we did a study of that. And we know that when you're going into oncoming traffic with a head-on collision, uh, propensity for injuries is very high. Um, so fundamentally, yes. Uh, is it the most effective method? I don't know. I think it's a combination of things. And certainly, you know, slow down. Put your phone down. Just some fundamentals. Um, what's, you know, the, I stopped a guy doing 140 the other day on the link uh, in a Mercedes. And I said, you know, the old slogan, I said, if you were in a hurry, now you're stopping and talking to me for 10 minutes. So did you really get there quicker? No. Uh, now I happen to be there, but the point is, it's going to slow you down. And they get in a collision, boy, uh, you talk about affected, uh, you know, whether it's insurance costs or your, um, you know, driving record, if it's already bad, uh, there's really re repercussions to this. It's it's an interesting discussion and debate, and, and I've been on record. I, st I still think at some point we're going to have to put them up there, uh, simply because, like you say, one head-on collision is one too many, and especially along the link. That's not much of a barrier, yeah. that little grass area, yeah. and uh, there's not much of a divot there. As a matter of fact, I had one engineer on the program months ago that basically said that, you know, if a car loses control and hits that curb, it actually flies over that median. It doesn't slow it down at all. 
Correct. It can, because if you see the Jersey walls, which they're called uh, the barriers on uh, the 400 series highways, it's fairly close to the lane of travel traffic, as opposed to your point, you know, 20, 30 feet away in the center portion. And that's true. They can go airborne. The whole idea with the shape of that construct on the Jersey wall <coughs> is that at close distances didn't cause an overturn. Basically, you just travel along the wall till you stop. You may bounce out into traffic, uh, but you don't generally flip. But when, you know, the engineer's knows a lot more about than I do, uh, but you've got that distance between as they strike it, it can catapult it. Uh, and <coughs> to the point about the Red Hill, I mean, if anybody's been on the Red Hill the last little while, actually half the Red Hill already has barriers on it. Mm-hmm. The top half of it, all the way down to almost Green Hill, mm-hmm. uh, there are barriers there. It's that one section from Green Hill down to, to the Queen Elizabeth Way. So uh, the debate will rage and continue for the, last, uh, the next little while, but I do appreciate the email on this. Uh, on uh, Twitter at CHML, Bill Kelly, uh, Casey says, uh, could you uh, please uh, comment and commend the police officers the other day that professionally dealt with the man who uh, had mental health issues wielding a knife? That was the incident down at Jackson Square. Yeah, and it, it's a good example. Uh, quite often the story is not told. We are interested in de-escalation, have been for years. Uh, obviously our conducted energy weapons that present, prevent or provides a non-lethal weapon in those situations. We do know from using them, often you just have to spark it um, and you get compliance. Again, that'd be great. Talking to people, that's another big thing. Of course, our mobile crisis rapid response team, where we have a mental health worker in the officer in uniform going to life-threatening situations. Um, All of it for de-escalation. This is probably more common than the public would know. Uh, We deal with, on average, about 16 to 18 person in crisis uh, situations per day, per day. And, uh, you know, we've seen through MCERT, Mobile Crisis Rapid Response Team, a reduction in the apprehension rate under the Mental Health Act to take a person to the hospital to be assessed. We've gone from uh, pre-MCERT at about 74% of the time at our front line to just over 10%. So again, de-escalation is a major focus, but there's all kind of other corollary benefits of that. Person's not stigmatized by sitting at hospital potentially. Uh, we look at alternate uh, treatment or approaches. It could be medication. It could be therapy, whatever it is. Uh, but our fundamental goal, and we've seen them in the coroner's inquests, we do not want any more deaths as a result of mental health issues. Can we guarantee that? No. Uh, can we, where we apply the resources in a strategic fashion, let, reduce it? Yes. So I really appreciate the public commenting on that and understanding, you know, we're interested, if it takes us two hours to solve the call, um, that's time well spent, in my opinion, uh, you know, as a chief, because if we get into a fatal interaction, it's going to be a whole lot more than two hours at a call. And again, for the disposition uh, for this person and their loved ones, I don't want to see anybody uh, killed in these interactions. And this goes all the way down to frontline officers. I know that you have special folks that, that are trained in these sorts of things, but all officers are now because you never know when you're going to run in, when you may be first on the scene in situations like this. And it's 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 a different kind of policing that, that, that really it's, it's positive and it's absolutely necessary now. That's right. And actually our COAST program, our Crisis Outreach and Support Team, which is an officer in plainclothes plus uh, a mental health worker or social worker. Uh, we've been running that for 20 years, born out of tragedy, of course, because it was uh, the death of uh, Zachary Antidormy. Yep, yep. um, and we're well aware of that. Um, but MCERT's an, an additional component. We were doing crisis intervention training back in the early 2000s after seeing some of it in the States. So to your point, our frontline still gets that. Uh, but then we have all these additional resources. And again, if we come up with another strategy that looks at better interventions for the clients, um, we'll continue on that course. And I, you know, we currently have a standing committee on mental health. I, and again, to the to that point, again, talking to some of the frontline officers, it's not as if they're trained. Uh, they're not they're not doctors. They're not psychologists, etc. But but there are warning signs. There are things that they can clue into that that indicate exactly what kind of protocol would be used. And and if assistance is needed, then that call is made. Correct. And I mean, there's so many, um, you know, varieties of mental health issues where it's schizophrenia, uh, OCD, bipolar. And again, we're not clinicians, but you treat the behavior that presents and whether it's psychosis or people seeing things, uh, we do have training on what the best approach is to deal with that. But again, to de-escalate, to get the person to the care they need. And that's our objective. This uh, a topic I wanted to touch on, and I know we're a little tight for time because of the uh, in- emails we got and in- the tweets we got on this. 
but it seems to be the battleground uh, that policing uh, services are, are facing right across North America, I guess right around the world right now, and that's the Internet. Uh, and, and it's happening right here at home. Uh, we're seeing this on a consistent basis right now. And uh, that, would, I would imagine, is going to have an impact on the budget, which is another topic. But uh, it's, it's a matter of deploying resources to a, an area that uh, maybe 10 years ago wasn't even on your radar. Now it seems to be almost a priority. Exactly. And I guess, you know, I did a presentation to the board in November through our IT section. I titled it, you know, the digital tsunami or digital tidal wave. It's not particularly creative. It's been said before, but it really is that vast and will have that much impact. So, you know, the eight of the nine positions that uh, I asked for in the budget have to do exactly with that. And where I could civilianize, I did, and get expertise in those areas. One, to gather the evidence, but again, to analyze that evidence. And, you know, we've already referred to Bosma. Um, the time required to analyze, ensure the evidentiary integrity, to put together, and we talked about it earlier, it's compelling evidence um, for juries, for judges. And there it is. Um, so, yes, the other aspect of cybercrime, I'll call it, is really the Internet is either the... the um, uh, the subject of the crime being committed. In other words, they're trying to access it or take things through that, frauds, um, criminal harassment, all kinds of... And the second aspect, it's a mechanism to deliver it. So I know when we were looking at uh, the Chiefs of Police Conference, Canadian Chiefs, just to define cybercrime is very difficult because it touches so many investigations, frauds, harassments, um, uh, domestic violence. It's, it's interthreaded um, or interwoven with just about everything. So to your point, that creates a demand. Uh, I don't see it diminishing in the near future. In fact, it's probably going to expand. Uh, I don't even know what I don't know that's out there, uh, but I do know, for example, we're dealing with video formats. Uh, there's at least 62 that we have to be able to handle, download. Um, you know, we talked to our um, Michael Plaxton, uh, who's a guy who looks after this, and he says he still deals with beta in some cases. Uh, you know, if somebody's got an old piece of equipment and they're running beta tapes, we have to have the capability for that to, you know, format that's going to be signed next week that we don't even know about. Um, I didn't know anybody still had a beta machine. They do. I was surprised, too, <laughs> when he said that, but uh, they do. Um, so it is really a mechanism in one case to commit the offense or the goal of the offense um, and of course it's international now in terms of you can have people from other countries accessing and doing the things we see it with the CRA frauds we see it with many of the scams that are out there uh, but also the acquisition or mischief to data and of course uh, most major organizations have security dedicated to that whether it's you know Trojans or viruses or whatever um, so it continues have you got reports about this, uh, the one from CRA Canada Revenue saying, uh, uh, you know, Mr. Gert, uh, you you know, call us right now. You're behind in your taxes. And if you don't call in 10 minutes, we're going to send the, the Mounties to your front. I, I, I've had it two or three times now. No, uh, I, I received the calls as well. And, and quite frankly, kind of wait for a break in the action, um, you know, for my commentary, which they don't allow. And they hang up before you're even done. Uh, obviously, I don't act on it. And we all know that's not how CRA works. But, you know, again, from yeah, Well, a, you know what, because if you listen to the telltale signs, I mean, it sounds a little... And then as they go on, first of all, the guy gives his name, and he ends the message with, uh, take care, or something like that. And you <laughs> figure, they don't talk like that at CRA. <laughs> they're nice people, but they don't talk like that when they're after you. Uh, I hadn't heard that one. But. Oh, it's weird. It's bizarre <laughs> stuff. But the message here, I know we have to go. Uh, if you do hear that, or if you do get it, talk to the police about it. I mean, Definitely. if it goes unreported, yes. then you, you guys can't track it. Yeah, and the other thing is look up CRA in the blue pages or on the internet, get the phone number, give them a call. I'm sure, and I haven't checked on it, but I'm sure they have a call handling person just from the volume of calls, and they'll tell you. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, even if they're successful 5% of the times, we've seen scams where it's tens of thousands of dollars because people are frightened, right? So we don't want that. Exactly. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. Thanks as always. We'll uh, see you again in a few weeks. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.